this is a podcast where I talk to people with disabilities to hear their stories. I wouldn't expect anyone to know what life is like for someone who can't walk, can't see, or can't hear. But we have a responsibility to learn and grow throughout our lives. And this podcast is meant to help to see what life is like for someone on the other side. Welcome to Ability. On this episode, I talk to the head of design at Pinterest. This episode with August De Los Reyes. Now we're recording. Super cool. Great. Uh, so how are you doing today? Oh, great, Jacob. How are you? I'm doing awesome. Thanks so much for being here with me. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's it's real honor. Uh, I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. I know you have ankylospondylitis. Can you tell me a little bit about that, as if I know nothing? Oh, sure. Um, ankylosing spondylitis is an autoimmune disorder, which uh, implies that um, my immune system uh, is, is not working in the typical way most people's immune systems work. But it's not a deficiency, rather, my autoimmune system is overactive. So uh, disorders or, or um, conditions that fall into autoimmune disorders include arthritis, uh, Crohn's disease, psoriasis, and as you mentioned, ankylosing spondylitis. Uh, so what happens is with normally uh, healthy tissue, um, with ankylosing spondylitis, my body thinks that healthy tissue is somehow damaged or needs repair. And ankylosing spondylitis uh, um, kind of lets the body systems overreact. So it creates inflammation, uh, which then needs to um, repair itself when uh, the tissue is uh, normally healthy. Um, ankylosing spondylitis affects primarily the spine and sometimes uh, the shoulders and the rib cage. And a kind of shorthand for it is it's arthritis for the back. And so uh, what happens in my case, which is a bit of a severe case, uh, the, um, my vertebrae uh, started fusing together, uh, even though they were uh, perfectly uh, healthy bones. So that's ankylosing spondylitis in a nutshell. I know my reading of it is kind of uh, in, in the sense of it makes your spine a little more brittle than normal. Is that? Yes, that, that's okay. one of the um, uh, that's one of the effects. And in fact, when uh, I was diagnosed with ankylosing spondylitis in my early 30s. And by the way, that's kind of textbook timing. Uh, ankylosing spondylitis uh, affects mostly men, and it tends to become symptomatic in the late 20s, early 30s. And um, one of the effects is as the spine gets fused together, it uh, makes uh, the bones more uh, prone to fractures. So when I, when I was diagnosed, um, uh, my doctor went through a whole list of safety precautions for me, 
for example, uh, make sure I always hold on to the handrail when I climb stairs. If I didn't have a bat mat, bath mat in my shower, uh, to make sure that I put one in so I wouldn't slip and fall. Um, I had to be extra careful when riding my bicycle. Uh, in fact, I ended up, I, I, I used to like riding my bike quite a bit, but because of the risk of falls, um, I curbed my bike riding habit uh, a lot. Uh, so uh, yeah, it's, um, it, it, it seemed the, a lot of the precautions I took uh, um, didn't hugely impact uh, my day-to-day -day routine. So it kind of progressed for you slowly, I know. It probably started out with riding a bike and things to where you are now. What was that progression like for you? Oh, um, well, uh, yeah, the, the changes happened very slowly. And by the time uh, I was diagnosed, uh, people were telling me that I looked tired when I didn't feel tired at all. Uh, and really what was happening is I was, my shoulders started uh, hunching forward and um, it was a really gradual process, but the kind of wake up call and, uh, and this was how I ended up being diagnosed. Um, I, uh, at my former employer, I uh, joined um, a weight management program which include exercise and diet monitoring and so forth. And uh, at the beginning of the program, uh, we had to take a physical, which included blood tests. Uh, and that's when the genetic marker for ankylosing spondylitis was discovered. And I began treatment at the same time as this exercise program. So uh, I guess it happened uh, very gradually and suddenly at the same time. What are some of the treatments for AS? Um, I'm, I'm not exactly sure uh, what the entire uh, breadth of treatments are. I can only speak for my own experience. And um, I was using uh, a kind of uh, treatment called a biologic. Uh, some of the brand names for uh, biologic treatments include Humira and Enbrel, and that involved um, injecting this biologic drug uh, um, once a week. And what that would do is it would slow down my immune system uh, quite a bit so that it wouldn't be overactive. Uh, aside from that, there was also uh, physical therapy and exercise. It's really important to stay active uh, while treating ankylosing spondylitis. Oh, um, uh, it was, my, my childhood was pretty straightforward. Um, went to school, uh, played, played with other kids, played a little soccer, um, high school was cool. Uh, it, it wasn't really an issue at all. What brought you to want to be a designer? Oh, I'd always wanted to be a designer. Um, even when I was a kid, uh, people had asked me uh, what I wanted to do when I grew up, and I said I wanted to be an architect. Uh, 
And when I got to college, I saw how miserable all the architecture students were. So um, I wanted to do something similar that married both uh, uh, creativity with kind of rigorous analytic and scientific approaches. And design just kind of fit the bill. And uh, yeah, I, I, I've always wanted to be a designer and um, now I'm doing it. What led you to more of the technology side of design? Because you got your first big job in design, well, really big job at Microsoft as being the head of design at Xbox, which is pretty cool. So what what led you to that path? Oh, it was really quite by accident. Uh, in college, um, I wanted to, my original plan was to go into magazine publishing. Um, and I wanted to be either an editor uh, or an art director for a magazine. Uh, but my junior year in college, uh, there was, and this was in the early 90s, um, there was a group of tech companies uh, that formed something called the New Media Consortium. And companies in this consortium included Apple and Adobe and Kodak and a bunch of others. Uh, and what they did is they provided grants for about 20 different schools with new technologies around media and design, uh, um, including video and audio and interaction design. And this was really ahead of its time uh, for the early 90s. Uh, and at that time, it was before the popularization of the internet or the web. Uh, the primary new medium was CD-ROMs. So uh, during my junior year, uh, when my college opened what was called a new media lab with all these uh, Macintoshes and these new things called scanners and uh, digital cameras, um, we just uh, started exploring uh, what these uh, new media devices could do for our more traditional design and uh, literary work. And uh, as a way of helping pay back the grant uh, from the New Media Consortium, each of the colleges that were given all this new technology had to come up with a project to showcase how they applied the technology. And uh, the project that my school came up with was we would create a multimedia uh, admissions brochure um, to really talk about everyday life at the college uh, through the eyes of uh, students. And this took the form of a CD-ROM. And uh, what we decided to explore was nonlinear storytelling. So in the CD-ROM, you could follow a typical day uh, for one of five students, and you could follow uh, any one of the students throughout their day. And when they would run into each other on campus, you could choose to um, stop following one student and follow uh, another student. And just it's kind of like a choose your own adventure uh, for uh, life at college. And um, it, it was really successful. And so I graduated in 1995, and I um, began working at a magazine in Boston. And at that time, 
uh, Apple, who was one of the members of the New Media Consortium, uh, decided to feature our team and our CD-ROM at Macworld Expo in Boston. And so uh, we presented our work, and at the end of Macworld, uh, everyone who had presented the work uh, were given job offers in technology. And at that point, I immediately abandoned my plans for magazine publishing and uh, joined a startup uh, then. And uh, I never looked back. I've been in design and technology ever since. Looking back on it, especially through the lens of today, that seems to be a very wise choice, going from magazines, which aren't doing so hot right now, <laughs> to technology. Uh, yeah, yeah, I feel fortunate. Um, but I, I, I think the, the essence of uh, magazines and communications um, is still the same. It's just taking a, a, a different format. So... Uh, if you think about, if you think back a hundred years ago, and the notion of uh, truth, that if someone saw uh, a message or an article in print, it kind of implied that it was true, and then you jump ahead, where photography became uh, the kind of source of truth, photographic evidence, and then today, uh, there's even question around whether. Uh, video documentation or new forms of media uh, actually imply a sense of trustworthiness around the medium. And so when we think about uh, magazines, for example, um, they only reach people so far uh, if they stick to print. But if um, the very same magazine and the very same content uh, were introduced in digital media, uh, then it would uh, it could scale globally and instantly, and as a, a matter uh, of this point, the fact that you and I are having this interview, this conversation uh, on digital media, is something that would be unheard of, say even twenty years ago. Back then, I'd have to send you a telegraph. It would have been a real pain. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> no, but like, like yeah, dot, we dot, would have had stop. to no. reserve a studio or figure out yeah. some sort of radio station to help host this conversation. And today, we could just pull up yeah. our laptops and have this conversation. How has AS and your journey changed your philosophy of design? Oh, um, uh, well, even before I was diagnosed with uh, AS, um, uh, I'd always been a big fan of accessibility. Because uh, as a matter of course, I just thought, well, that's just good design. It shouldn't even be a question. Uh, but um, uh, after being diagnosed and even further uh, with uh, my accident, um, I kind of shifted gears a bit, and I thought, well, accessibility seems like a kind of secondary solution, uh, a kind of workaround that, say, a designer designs a, a, a concept that isn't totally accessible, and then through other means, people who 
can't access a product or an experience have to figure out how to access it in their own way. Uh, it's, it still seems like people who have ability differences end up getting a second rate or a second class experience. And so um, one of my critiques of accessibility as a designer has shifted, which is rather than creating something and then creating a kind of accessible workaround, why don't we just begin by uh, designing uh, our original idea for someone with an ability difference and assume that if we do that, it will benefit everyone else. Uh, and if we look at the history of uh, technology and innovations, um, there's, there are lots and lots of examples uh, of how this approach, which is called inclusive design, uh, has been done. Um, things like uh, the, the telephone uh, was developed by Alexander Graham Bell for the deaf. Um, the remote control uh, was originally conceived uh, um, for people who had mobility differences and weren't able to stand up and cross the living room to change the channel on the TV. But if you jump ahead three or four decades, a remote control is kind of a ex expectation. It's a de facto feature of all televisions. Um, the typewriter was conceived uh, by uh, someone who was in love with this Italian countess who was blind. And the countess wasn't able to write her own love letters, so he developed the keyboard for her so that she could write letters uh, um, to him uh, in private rather than having someone help write out the letters longhand. So uh, these are just some examples of inclusive design, and uh, this is an approach to design and product development that I'm uh, helping to champion in the industry. We haven't directly addressed it yet, but I want to make sure we don't miss it. You mentioned your incident, which unfortunately, which has left you in a wheelchair, which I also use a power chair, but can you tell me what happened and how that's led you here? Oh, uh, yeah, yes, of course. Um, so in 2013, uh, I was about six months into uh, my dream job, which was uh, heading design uh, for Xbox, uh, Microsoft's gaming platform. Uh, and uh, about six months in, um, I was really, at the time, I was really obsessed with being able to get a good night's sleep. So I made huge investments into uh, my bed and my sheets and um, I bought this really big down comforter because uh, it was such a demanding and stressful job uh, that along with eating well and exercising, uh, I wanted to make sure I had quality sleep time. And it turns out that uh, the comforter, the down comforter that I bought, which is oversized, uh, made my bed look much larger than it actually was. And um, as an accident, I ended up rolling uh, onto the comforter without 
there being any bed underneath and I fell off my bed. Uh, and it was a bit of a jarring fall. It was only 18 inches off the ground. Uh, but because I have ankylosing spondylitis, any fall uh, is um, a kind of call to action for me to make sure that I didn't have a fracture uh, in my spine. Um, so the next day uh, after my fall, I started experiencing uh, difficulty going to the bathroom which is one of the signs for me to go to the emergency room right away. And um, I ended up going to the emergency room and uh, let the doctors know that I had ankylosing spondylitis, I had a fall, I'm experiencing symptoms, that I have a potential fracture uh, in my spine. And during that first hospital visit, uh, I was about to get admitted to the hospital for further tests and monitoring. And what had happened, which looking back, I think changed the whole thing, was uh, there was a shift change. Because um, I went to the hospital at about 2 in the morning and uh, at about 7 a.m. All the doctors who had been treating me for the prior five hours went off shift and suddenly I had a new, uh, a new doctor in the emergency room, a new radiologist, everyone had changed. And rather than being admitted to the hospital, uh, I was sent home uh, where the new doctors, and again, this is just my interpretation of it, uh, assumed that I had some sort of digestive problem rather than uh, uh, a spinal fracture. And, I even demanded reinsurance from both the radiologist and the hospitalist at the time that if they were sending me home, could they guarantee that I did not have a spinal fracture? Well, uh, long story short, I ended up going back to the emergency room four times after that over the course of the next 10 days. And for whatever reason, the bias that uh, I had some sort of... Um, uh, digestive disorder seemed to stick uh, as opposed to really looking uh, whether I did in fact have uh, a spinal injury or not. And in my fourth visit, um, that's when uh, my spinal cord actually swelled up and, and was injured. And um, I got, ended up getting uh, rushed to the, another hospital uh, where they had a, a neurologist who was ready to uh, perform emergency surgery uh, right then. And so uh, when I came to, I don't even know how many days later, uh, when I came to, uh, the doctor was there and uh, he informed me that I had broken my back, I had injured my spinal cord, and I was suffering from T5 paralysis and it was a complete injury. So um, that's my story. That's how I ended up in the chair. Did that shake your faith in the healthcare system? Uh, no, no. Um, uh, initially, um, it didn't. Uh, um, but in kind of thinking back at what was going on, um, I realized that it was a 
systemic problem. So in other words, everyone was optimizing for their local maximum. Uh, in other words, I'd argue that none of the doctors who treated me had any sort of malicious intent. Uh, um, none of the staff, I think they were all doing their jobs. Uh, I think it just so happened that the system that was in place that ended up uh, changing the entire medical team that was treating me initially to a different medical team and whatever systems there were to uh, transfer the knowledge or the opinions uh, or uh, the details of my case, something went wrong in the system. Uh, so in thinking back to it, I think that it's a systemic problem and not the shortcoming of a given individual. How has it affected your career? Oh, um, well, I, I, I used to do a lot of business travel, especially at the stage uh, that I am in my own career, uh, which is really about um, building relationships with peers in the industry and uh, um, building bridges between whichever company I'm working for and other companies. Um, and now um, uh, I have to really manage that kind of activity for myself uh, because travel is a bit of a challenge uh, for me. Um, fortunately, uh, technology uh, plays a role in the I can video conference uh, and have pretty good uh, conference calls. Uh, I'm even making a presentation uh, for a conference that I'll be delivering uh, via video conference. So uh, I, I'd say that's the biggest impact that I've had on my career. What I've found so interesting about reading your story and learning about you is you had this accident and then you continue your job at, on the Xbox team and for a few years and then you've now moved to Pinterest last year. And to me, I would get really comfortable and say, well, this happened to me and I'm going to stay where I am and enjoy my job in Redmond. But instead, you moved out to SF and are working at Pinterest. What was that decision like? Oh, well, um, I think there were two factors to it. Uh, one is um, because of what had happened to me, I'd become uh, a really uh, energized uh, by the notion of not only inclusive design, but also making sure that design in the 21st century is also equitable to marginalized communities and sustainable from both an ecological and psychological point of view. In other words, uh, inclusion, equity, and durability or sustainability are kind of the three points of the design legacy that I'd like to leave uh, behind. And looking at a choice between uh, doing that at Xbox and uh, doing that at Pinterest, uh, I thought that I would have uh, more potential impact um, helping shape the design culture and direction of 
uh, a very promising uh, product uh, like Pinterest, much more so than um, a popular consumer product uh, like Xbox. Not that it's bad, it's just that I think there uh, are um, more opportunities uh, for an offering and for a role such as mine uh, to realize uh, the vision for 21st century design. The second factor around my decision uh, was um, also knowing, as I mentioned earlier, uh, that travel would be a challenge. Uh, but moving to the Bay Area uh, for someone working in a technology was like moving to the capital of the tech industry. Uh, in other words, everyone is here. Uh, so uh, that helps me uh, in uh, my role and my career stage, uh, meeting peers in the industry and other leaders. And they're all within a kind of 50 mile radius of San Francisco. At least many of them are. Um, and I still have my house in Seattle, so I go back there about two or three times a year. And uh, the Seattle community is getting pretty close to rivaling uh, the Bay Area community in terms of technology and design. So I feel like I've gotten the best of both worlds. Especially your time at Microsoft, I imagine that was a very challenging time to jump into Xbox, considering that the Xbox One announcement hadn't gone over super well. <laughs> and they were in a major rethink. So I imagine that, you know, you, you had done your time there and it was time to move on. Oh, um, well, yeah, in fact, uh, I, I was pretty sure I was going to stay at Xbox until I retired. Uh, but um, when I got the call from uh, one of the co-founders of Pinterest, uh, Evan Sharp, uh, my, my current boss, um, he and I clicked instantly uh, from our very first phone call. And I'd already been an active Pinterest user uh, at the point that he and I uh, uh, met. And um, I'd never uh, felt such alignment with um, a potential employer, both uh, philosophically and operationally, and um, having a common vision for what Pinterest is and what it could become. Uh, so uh, that really uh, helped uh, um, sway me to come here. Who inspires you? Oh, um, I know this seems, sounds like a cliche, but uh, I, I try to find inspiration in uh, just about everything. Uh, in fact, uh, um, it's more uh, everyday objects or uh, seeing people uh, um, being happy in a kind of uh, everyday interaction or experience. Um, uh, that, to me, that, that's, uh, that's pretty inspiring. What brings you joy? Hmm. I don't, again, I, uh, it, it's strange. I don't think of joy uh, as um, something that gets brought in and out. I think it really has to do with being present and um, really appreciating the moment in uh, which we live or uh, in, 
and when you stop and you realize things aren't so bad, uh, that's that's a pretty joyful thing. And I try and acknowledge uh, kind of everyday kind of joy uh, in everything that I do. What do you consider your biggest accomplishment? Hmm. I don't know. I don't think I've done it yet. Uh, um, I, I I wouldn't even know how to how to measure it. Um, uh, I think the uh, having a big accomplishment is um, it, it's an observation that other people have uh, on my own life rather than my trying to dissect and analyze what I do. Um, I just kind of do what I do every day and uh, appreciate. Uh, if I can accomplish any goals that I set out for myself. I always imagined that if I was a designer and had the power, I would, you know, design, you know, like a wheelchair and lots of accessible stuff. You know, do you ever feel that urge to, like, design a wheelchair? Um, not, it's funny because not, not so much a, a wheelchair, but uh, my relationship with my wheelchair, which is about four years old right now, uh, makes me think about chairs, or more broadly speaking, seating uh, in general, uh, whether it's for people with ability differences or not. Um, yeah, so, uh, um, but what I would say to you is, uh, there's no reason uh, to hold back from uh, designing uh, a new kind of wheelchair or uh, um, a new kind of accessibility device. Uh, I, I would I would encourage you to go for it and start hacking it or uh, um, putting some sort of prototype together and just going from there. What's the biggest challenge you've had to overcome? I, I don't try to think of it again in the same way uh, that you asked about biggest achievement. Um, I don't. I don't try to think about biggest challenges because uh, I, I think if I, I often find myself uh, um, going down a rabbit hole of what if this, what if that, and I have to stop myself. Uh, so when I think about challenges, I try not to think about it in terms of uh, how big they are, but rather what can I do today and what action can I take today. Uh, to address a challenge that I'm facing, maybe over the near or long term. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say at the pearly gates? Uh, welcome. <laughs> Real quick, I had a friend that I asked if she had any Pinterest questions. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. So if you don't mind, I thought it would be funny if I at least asked you one. And you can answer it. With nothing or with something, I'm not going to pressure you at all. Don't, don't feel any pressure. No problem. This is just kind of fun. Sure. So she wanted to know what happened to the heart feature. Oh, to likes? Um, yeah, that's, that, that's, what was, that's what she said. Oh, uh, well, um, we decided the liking uh, seemed to be an action that was much more uh, appropriate for a social network. And um, one thing that people uh, often assume about Pinterest is that we are a social network, but in fact, it's really more about an inner dialogue 
uh, or a kind of uh, self-discovery around our tastes and our preferences and uh, how we want to affect our day-to-day lives, whether it's something to wear or something to eat or how you want to arrange your dwelling. Uh, and so the notion of likes uh, seems to be more about um, uh, sharing what you like with other people. And rather, we thought the, the primary action uh, for Pinterest is really about saving, because if you like something enough, you're going to save it anyway. Uh, so uh, the decision was based around that and arguably around just simplifying the experience. She also wanted to know, uh, what is your biggest tip for using Pinterest? Use it every day. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I mean, that's, it's kind of funny, that's but awesome. it's, it's also like uh, the more signal uh, that you provide in terms of uh, pins that you save and um, how you do it, the, the experience gets better and better. Uh, it gets more personalized and it really... Uh, um, uh, focuses on your tastes and preferences. And so the more that you use it, the better the content will become. Drink more Ovaltine. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Drink more Ovaltine. That's, that's, the, that's the tip. Uh, what boards do you have on Pinterest? Oh, uh, if you look at my Pinterest account, it's um, pinterest.com slash augustdlr. And um, I'm constantly playing uh, with my boards. Uh, I think right now I've, I'm doing something with about uh, 30 boards. Maybe it's gotten up to 40 or 50. Uh, um, but what's funny is I, I have about 700 followers, and the most popular board I have is a board of um, people wearing rabbit masks. And that has about 570 followers uh, out of the 700 who follow me. Uh, last one I've got for you, and I think this is very similar to the second one, sure. but any suggestion to Pinterest users? Um, uh, well, yeah, I, I would say um, uh, part of what we're trying to do is inspire people to get away from their computers and their phones and uh, do activities that impact their lives in positive and real ways. Again, whether that's uh, food to eat or clothes to wear or uh, how you decorate your house or remodeling, whether it's a small project or a big project. Um, really, uh, in, Pinterest is about helping people discover and do the things that they love. So um, if there's even the slightest interest or curiosity about um, any sort of activity, I would say first use Pinterest to help uh, discover those things and narrow down to uh, potential things to try out. And uh, most of all, really just go out and try new things. And um, for us, that, that's what success looks like. 
Well, thanks so much for indulging me there. I really appreciate it. <laughs> no, it's a real pleasure. I could talk about Pinterest all day. Special thanks to August for being on this episode, and thanks to you for listening. You can follow the show on Twitter at Ability Podcast, and you can follow me on Twitter at the Jacob Holt. You can check out the show on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Ability Podcast. You can also send us an email at abilitypodcast at gmail.com. If you have a quick second, please leave a rate and review on iTunes. It really helps out the show. Thanks so much for listening, and until next time, keep on rolling.